Well, this morning, if you've got your Bibles, we're going to 2 Kings chapter 6, 2 Kings chapter 6, and picking up uh, really uh, in the middle uh, where we left off last week. Last week, we finished up this section in which we had been looking at these individual miracle episodes uh, in the book. So Elisha had been at the center of these stories of miracles, and this week we began a transition back into the stories of kings and nations. Those miracles we've been looking at were not centered around kings or armies, but instead common people, widows and a group of prophets on the margins and a barren woman. But now in the middle of chapter 6, we began a transition back into these geopolitical events, Israel and Judah and their neighbors, nations like the Syrians to the north. Second Kings seems to be making really clear that God is involved in both places. And I think that's a really important thing to note as we make this transition. There's a temptation to look for God in either one of these places or the other. God is the God of nations and history and kings, or God is the God of my own personal quiet prayer time, my personal experience. When in reality, what Second Kings shows us is that it's both. The same God which moves nations and kings and history itself is also present with the most common people in the most common kinds of pains, the common kinds of needs that we all experience. I think that's an important thing to recognize from this book. If God is only worried about kings and nations, then it gives us little personal comfort as we find ourselves caught up in the turbulence of it. If God is only worried about my feelings and my personal emotions, then he seems in some way sentimental and perhaps powerless against invading armies and tyrannical rulers. But in 2 Kings, he is very clearly the God of both. The God that shows up in individual lives, everyday sickness and poverty and need, and the same God who thwarts invading armies and leads kings into victory, moves nations against one another and avoids wars and violence. He is simultaneously both things in this story, and we get a reminder of it this week in a way that I actually think this story combines those two things. Once again, a servant at the center of the story, an everyday prophet servant, but also invading armies and the risks of war and the annihilation of cities, all right here in the middle of the story. If you've got your Bible, 2 Kings chapter 6, I'm going to be reading beginning in verse 8, what the ESV titles Horses and chariots of fire. Second Kings chapter 6, verse 8. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king, but Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. 
And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. When Elisha prayed, and then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against them, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. As soon as they entered Samaria, Elisha said, O Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. So the Lord opened their eyes, and they saw, and behold, they were in the midst of Samaria. As soon as the king of Israel saw them, he said to Elisha, My father, shall I strike them down? Shall I strike them down? He answered, You shall not strike them down. Would you strike down those whom you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? Set bread and water before them, that they may eat and drink and go to their master. So he prepared for them a great feast. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went to their master. And the Syrians did not come down again on raids into the land of Israel. This morning, what I want to do is walk back through that passage and make sure you pick up on all the details of what's going on, and then hopefully see the few things that I think it has to do with us, though most of us are not in the midst of invading armies and circled cities. I think there's a lot going on here that has to do with the world we too live in. Remember, we're at a time in Israel's history, to set it in its historical context, when the nation of Israel had broken into two pieces. There was the northern kingdom of Israel with its capital in Samaria, and there was the southern kingdom, Judah, which had its capital in Jerusalem. This story occurs between this northern kingdom of Israel and its neighbor immediately further north, Syria or Aram. Apparently during this time, it was common that the Syrians would ride down into this northern kingdom of Israel and raid and pillage. You might remember a few chapters ago, we read the story where the king or the general, Naaman, had come down into Israel and raided and taken captive a young girl who was now serving as a servant within his household. Something similar seems to be happening here where they continue to now raid and pillage and capture Israelites. This story opens with the Syrian king planning a much larger offensive into the nation. He has set an ambush in which he's planned to move his army down within the Israelite territory and surprise the Israelite king in battle. Somehow, though, Elisha gets word of it. The passage doesn't tell us specifically how, but Elisha goes and warns Israel's king exactly these hidden secret plans of the Syrians. We assume, knowing Elisha well by this point, that it's certainly a kind of prophetic wisdom that he has, knowing exactly the move of the Syrians. After this happens apparently more than once, two or three times, the passage says, the Syrian king begins to suspect that there may be a spy within his administration. One of those who knows the plan, one of his own, must be informing the Israelite king of their movements. But his group of Syrian generals inform him that it's not a spy, not one of them, but instead Elisha knows and hears their plans, knows even the words that are spoken within the king's bedroom, 
and is so by thwarting their plans by warning the king of Israel. So the Syrians now make it their goal to capture Elisha. If Elisha is the one throwing off the plans, then Elisha must be seized and captured. They learn that he is in a place called Dothan, and the Syrian king dispatches a significant force, including horsemen and chariots. They come down and encircle the city under the cover of night. When Elisha's servant wakes early in the morning, he went out and realized that the whole city was now surrounded and greatly outnumbered. He rushed back to Elisha like most of us would do. What do we do? We're trapped, encircled. Elisha does something that's somewhat surprising. It doesn't end up impacting the outcome, but he goes and takes the servant out to see that army and prays a simple prayer over him. He prays that the servant's eyes might be opened. And when God answers that prayer, suddenly this young man, this servant, sees that outside of that encircled Syrian army is another army, the hills covered with horses and chariots of fire, this angelic army that surrounds the army that surrounds them. The Syrian army proceeds, and at daylight, as they begin to move on the city, Elisha prays again that they would be blinded, and God answers that prayer as well. Their whole attack is halted as they lose sight and find themselves unable to move. And so Elisha goes out to them and says, you're in the wrong place. Follow me and I'll lead you to where you should be. They, in panic and blind and unable to move, apparently follow. And they find themselves in the middle of Samaria. Remember, Samaria being the capital of Israel. So the large city, the administration of the the Israelite kingdom. Once again, Elisha prays that now their eyes would be opened, and when they are, they find themselves surrounded in the middle of this city. Elisha prays, and they suddenly realize that they have been tricked and are now at the mercy in the hands of the Israelite army. The Israelite king seems to be thrilled. Do you notice in verse 21 how he repeats himself? Shall I strike them down now? Shall I strike them down now? He's chomping at the bit. Finally, his enemy is within his hands, led to him, blind, now surrounded themselves. But instead, Elisha commands them to not slaughter them, to not take them captive, but to feed them and give them water. And so the Israelite king sets before them a feast and then sends them back home. That's a really interesting story, and here's what I want to do with it this morning few of the pieces. I want to show you this knowledge that God has, that Elisha has, the blindness that is so central to the story, the sight that seems to return from that blindness, and this final image of a feast. The first one is this knowledge of God. The context for this story is all about spies, espionage, secrets, people who have insider information that aren't supposed to have it, How does the Syrian army plans keep falling into their enemies' hands and keep fighting themselves thwarted? Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, the passage reads, he tells the kings of Israel the words, because every word that you speak is known to him even in your bedroom. Now, it's really important to understand how gods and prophets like this worked in the ancient world. Usually the gods were associated with a particular place, a nation, or a certain piece of land. That's one of the things as we've been reading through 2 Kings that's actually come up several times. Remember that story about Naaman, the Syrian general who came down and was healed in the Jordan. His request when he left, now having been converted to worship of Israel's God, was that he might be able to take two bags full of dirt from Israel back with him to Syria. 
His thinking was, I want to be able to worship Israel's God, and to worship Israel's God, you need to be on Israel's ground. These gods are related to the ground, the place, the nation, and the people. Gods in the ancient world were thought of as local in particular. When you went into a new land or a new place, what you needed to do was worship the god of that place, that city, or that nation. And so it must have come as a shock to somebody like this Syrian king who imagined we have our gods of Syria, they have their gods of Israel, that this god of Israel is able to hear the words that he speaks even in his own bedroom. That Elisha, by God's omnipresence, his presence both in Israel but outside of it, has access to even the secret words in his own palace. That had been a hard thing for him to understand, to accept. What do you do against a nation, against a prophet and against a God who is everywhere and knows all things? What possible advantage could you have when this God is eavesdropping on your most secret words, your most secret plans? Israel's God was not restricted by human boundaries or political lines or the dirt that you were standing on. I think that's actually a pretty good reminder for us. Most of us don't think of God as a God who's restricted to a particular piece of ground. But it is easy to start thinking, especially in this world we live in, that God is primarily here in places like this. When we worship together, or perhaps when you go into that prayer closet and pray to him, that God and moments of true, deep spirituality happen in these kinds of places. But what does it mean that this God in which we pray and worship here is also the same God that is present in the words of situation rooms at the White House, or present in secret bunkers in Ukraine, or palaces in Russia? That there is nothing in all of this world, in the highest places of power, in the most secret meetings, nothing schemed or planned, even in the heart of man, that this God is not aware of, not present to, not in on. So it is that God is always present. And as one commentator I read this week put it, the hidden ways of God endlessly subvert human power and human planning. That God is capable in any moment, in any plan, to insert himself into whatever it is we plan and plot and imagine we have control over. So it is the real challenge of this story is then blindness. Certainly what Elisha realizes that so few people in the story do is that God is present, that he is there in the midst of war and conflict, in the midst of secret planning. And so it is he prays for this servant to have his eyes opened that he might see that constant presence of God before him. I imagine that night as the Syrian army crept into their circled position around Dothan, as they realized that nobody in the city was awakened by it, that they had it encircled. Dothan we know very little about. It apparently wasn't a prominent city in Israel during the time, and so it would have been easy for them to have imagined the plan had gone perfectly. They were in the position of surprise, the tactical advantage, control. Blindness is one of the major themes of this story in the Bible. The town sleeps, unaware of what awaits them outside. And when the young servant wakes in the morning to go out, what he sees is the army. He is blind the way that the passage presents it. And Elisha recognizes it too, as he prays for his eyes to be open that he might see. It's interesting how often this image of blindness comes up within the Bible. There are certainly places that it's physical and literal. We know of all the the places that the blind are healed. Certainly a part of Jesus' ministry was restoring the sight of the blind. 
But yet Jesus also often talked about a kind of spiritual blindness, that the religious leaders of his day had all that they needed before them, the law, the scriptures, but yet somehow they were blind to what it actually said. They could physically see, but they were blind to what God was doing and saying. Jesus spoke of those who needed to be healed of this spiritual blindness, and he spoke of those who had eyes and could not see, ears and could not hear. That image is actually all over the place in the Bible. It's all over the Old Testament as well, too, and particularly places like the Old Testament prophets. So Isaiah writes many times about Israel's spiritual blindness, saying things like, from Isaiah chapter 29, Be stunned and amazed, blind yourselves, and be sightless. Be drunk, but not with wine, stagger, but not from beer. The Lord has brought over you a deep sleep. He has sealed your eyes. He has covered your heads. For you, this whole vision is nothing but words sealed in a scroll. And if you are given the scroll to read, you would say, read this, please. I cannot because it is sealed. Or you get something actually very similar from Paul's own words. When Paul writes to the second Corinthians in chapter four, he says to them, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. I think part of the reason physical blindness is so prominent in the scriptures is it's getting at this reality that all of us have a kind of blindness that we live with, that we struggle against. That the God of this world, as Paul writes, has a tendency to blind us as well. That the more we live in this world, the more attention we give to the things of this world, the more we think like this world and interact with the world's ways, the harder it is for us to see to recognize this seal that cannot be broken. We cannot read what is written because we have become blind to it. God tends by his word, by his presence, to point out that blindness and force us to either stumble along by it or by what he does by his grace and mercy, the shocking news of the gospel, to open our eyes to the way in which we've been blind. God is not something that we tend to just stumble across on our own, as if in this blindness, wandering around, we should just discover God and suddenly see. Instead, our hearts are hard and unwilling to look. We are desperate for our own way, fixated on what we want. Maybe like that Syrian army marching on the city and imagining we have it surrounded, our plan has worked perfectly, we're in the position of advantage, but blind to the army that encircles us. One of my favorite illustrations, I've shared it with you before, but it's been a long time ago, um, was from a news story I came across in the Washington Post several years ago. Uh, Some of you will know the famous classical musician Joshua Bell. He's one of the most famous violinists of our time. The story talks about how just in that time he had recently sold out the Boston Symphony and the cheapest seats you could buy to go and hear him play were $100. The seats started from there and went up and he had sold the Boston Symphony out. But working with the Washington Post, he decided to do a little bit of an experiment. While he was in town, they dressed him in plain clothes and a ball cap and they sent him into the subway during rush hour and asked him to perform. Uh, Like a common street musician for tips, he opened up his case and took out his violin and set a jar out in front of him in the middle of rush hour, began to play. He took with him his Stradivarius violin that's estimated to be worth $3.5 million, the most expensive thing in the subway that day, certainly. 
He began to play his first piece, a piece by Bach, which Bell says in the article is one of the greatest pieces of music, in his opinion, ever written, but also one of the greatest achievements of any man in history. He described the piece as spiritually powerful, emotionally powerful, and structurally perfect. So in other words, what you had that morning in the the subway was one of the world's greatest musicians playing one of the greatest songs ever written and doing so on one of the greatest instruments ever made. So what happened? He played for 45 minutes. They had a secret camera so that they could record all of this. In that 45 minutes, 1,070 people passed, none of them having to pay $100 per seat to hear the performance. Of that 1,070 people, seven people stopped to listen, and he made a total of $32 in tips during the 45 minutes, which I actually thought sounded pretty good. That's a well above minimum wage, 45 minutes work, until the article pointed out that normally his performances earn him $1,000 per minute of performed music. Seven people stopped to listen, and he made 32 bucks. In the conclusion, the author of the article wrote this, which is really my point. If the surge of modern life so overpowers us that we are deaf and blind to something like that, then what else are we missing? I couldn't help but think, is there a chance that somebody had paid two or three hundred dollars a couple nights before to listen to him in the Boston Symphony, but that couldn't recognize that it was him playing? Why? Because headphones in and emails to be answered, work to be gotten to that morning, they rushed right past it and couldn't recognize what it was they were seeing, hearing. That seems to be at the center of what's going on in this story. With invading armies, with secrets and spies, issued orders to seize and capture, all of these characters in this story rush about their plans and their business and how few of them recognize that God is involved in this story blind to it. His servant certainly missed it. Seeing that army camped around him, he rushed to Elisha. You can hear the panic in his words. Oh, my master, what shall we do? But Elisha prays a simple prayer. God, open his eyes. Let him see. And as he does, he realizes that the hills all around the Syrians are filled with an even greater angelic force, chariots and horsemen in fire. A couple of things about that image. The first is that this is not presented as some sort of philosophical idea, that in that moment he sensed that God's presence was all around them, or he sensed that God would protect them. But instead, it's his physical eyes that sees this spiritual reality. This is not something philosophically true. God surrounds his people and protects him. It is something physically and visibly true for him. There are actual horses and chariots of fire in the spiritual realm that encircle their enemies. God's presence, his power, his army, his force is real and visible now by this gift of sight that God has given him. I don't think 2 Kings is giving that to you as a way of saying, take comfort, there's this idea of God's presence around you. I think it's saying, though you may not see it, his presence is as real as anything you do see. That his angelic forces surround enemies, even when you don't recognize them, still very much real and there. The other thing, though, that struck me about this is that though he gets this image of this angelic force, the power of it, all of the hills and the mountains, 
ablaze in the fire of heavenly chariots and horsemen. This is not how God chooses to intervene in the story. What you imagine is going to happen, remember when Elijah called down the fire from heaven upon those soldiers, those groups of 50 under the commander, you imagine something like that is about to happen. These horses and chariots of fire are about to rush down from the hills and overpower the Syrian army and defeat them, crush them in flames. They may not have even seen it coming. But instead, this young servant is given a vision of what God can do, of God's presence, But that's not the way in which God chooses to act in this moment. Instead, he blinds the Syrian army and spares them. He does not descend those angelic forces on them, but has Elisha lead them blind and captive to Samaria. I think part of what you're supposed to realize, like that servant did, is that God has all kinds of means at his disposal, though for his purposes— At times, he chooses to intervene in all sorts of ways. Do you remember that scene when Jesus was being arrested in the garden? And Peter, of course, took out his sword and began slashing, slicing, took off the ear of one of the temple guards. We read this. Then Jesus said to him, Peter, put your sword back into its place. For all who take the sword will perish by the sword. Do you think that I cannot appeal to my father And he will at once send more than 12 legions of angels? But how then should the scriptures be fulfilled that it must be so? In other words, like that scene, here is Jesus realizing in that moment, sure, a few temple guard have come with their clubs and torches to arrest me, but do you not realize the legions of angelic angels, warriors, the force of heaven surrounding us even now, that at one word could be called down? But in this moment, that is not what God is doing. Something like that happens here. The whole army of heaven surrounding, now this young servant finally able to see it, But yet God is doing something else. These two truths supposed to be held simultaneously. God is capable of all things. And yet God chooses by his wisdom to do things that sometimes we don't understand. This story is not about how God always calls down armies of fires. If you just prayed a little harder or sacrificed enough, or if he cared a little bit more, then you, like Elijah, could snap your fingers and there it would be just as you would have it. This story is a kind of comfort, a way of urging you on to faith and trust, to know that you too are surrounded by all of those forces that at a word of God's command could level any enemy before you. You are never alone. You are never hopeless. But it is also a reminder that at times God chooses to do things by his sovereignty that may not be that, that at times he will level the enemy before us, and at other times he will lead that enemy into something else. There was a line in a novel I was reading recently that said, the only grace that you can have is the grace that you can imagine. I think that's close to being right. Something about that is true. The grace that we enjoy and experience is the grace that we recognize, the grace that we see. When we recognize what Christ has done, we have access to something of that grace. And so it is that we can always see more and that he, by his gifts, gives us more faith, more of that grace, more of that that mercy. So much of it still unrecognized, but by the work he's doing, 
giving us and growing us more and more into it. But the point is, there is so much of his grace that does go unimagined, unrecognized by us. We see what God can do is either this or that. The two outcomes we've already determined, the one that would be our destruction and the one that would be our salvation. But so often his grace comes in ways that we don't fully imagine, ways of working and doing things that had not been on our pre-plotted plans of how it is that God would rescue us. Thankfully, we have this option, like Elisha, of praying. God, open my eyes. God, help me see more of how your grace is at work. Help me see all of the means you have at your disposal and you, by your wisdom, what you're doing in this place at this moment. Give me greater faith, greater access to your grace as a gift by your spirit. It takes open eyes to fully receive all of that grace that is given. And if that point needed to be any clearer, I think this story does just that. The blind enemy... Now, foolishly following Elisha, find themselves now surrounded by the Israelites. It is, as we've been talking about in 2 Kings, another great reversal. So many of these stories have been about the things that are expected suddenly inverted and turned backwards. Here it is certainly that way. The army who imagines they've done the encircling now finds themselves blinded, their eyes opened, and they are now encircled. They must have been terrified, realizing that what had motivated them was war and violence and conquest. And certainly now that they were surrounded, what they would receive was war and violence and conflict. But instead, they are spared. Instead, Elisha commands the king of Israel to set before them food and water. What kind of a nation is this? What kind of a king is this? What kind of a god and a prophet? The story opens with an army plotting and scheming through deception and espionage, secrets and hidden things. It leads them into blindness and then to a miracle of sight and then to a feast, to food and water. This is one of those passages where the application is not something that I can tell you just go and do. Uh, Go surround people and then when they can see that they're surrounded, feed them instead, right? Scare them really bad and then give them something good and they'll see how great it is. What do you do with an application out of this story? Well, you do exactly what these people in the story do. You see and you receive things unexpected. You are naturally blind to the things of God. There are things God is doing in your life right now that you don't recognize. There are things God has given you protection, security, that your eyes are blind to as you feel threatened and encircled. You, though, have one like Elisha, who prays for you. Father, open their eyes. Father, let them see the grace and mercy that you are given them. You are defended by a force, a power from heaven, no different. And you, too, are led in your blindness, in your rebellion, in your plans, in your conflict, led into that city, eyes now opened, the one that you had rebelled against before you, who now, instead of slaughter, sets before you a feast. Your eyes are opened to something you did not deserve, but by his grace and mercy is set before you. Every day in this world doesn't feel like that. There are things that you can't see that surprise you, things that leave you afraid, that leave you uncertain, 
possibly even worried that it's not going to play out like all of those promises you've read in Scripture. But this story reminds you that there is always more going on than what you can see. And that when you do see, it always leads to greater things received. Security, feasts, grace, and mercy. What I want to say to you this morning as a way of application is simply this. Keep praying for God to show you more of it. When you are afraid, it's because there are things you haven't yet recognized. Keep looking and searching for signs of how his grace is at work around you. Keep asking that his spirit would give you that gift of faith to see the things unseen. Keep remembering that more is going on than this world recognizes. That the way in which it plots and plans and organizes is, by God's purposes, thwarted, not a secret word of it unheard. And perhaps the most important line of the story of all is those Elisha speaks to that terrified young servant. Do not be afraid, for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Do not be afraid. This morning is the first Sunday of the month. It's been our tradition to celebrate communion together as we do. At Easter, the Resurrection Sunday, we looked at that story of Christ walking with those two men on the road to Emmaus, if you remember it. If you remember in that story, this idea of blindness is central as well. Though the resurrected Jesus, whom they had followed before, now walked with them, the two men couldn't recognize him. They spent the entire day walking and talking with Jesus, Jesus teaching them from the scriptures, and they could not recognize They were blind to the fact that it was Jesus alive who walked with them. It wasn't until they sat down that evening at the table with him that he picked up the bread and broke it that they suddenly recognized him. Something about the way in which he broke bread helps them to recognize who he was, helped them recognize what had changed. Do you remember at Easter we reflected on how the men, determined in spending the day leaving Jerusalem, suddenly upon this realization turned and ran back to Jerusalem, the whole day's journey, to report that Christ was risen and they had seen him for themselves. They had gone from fear and despair to now confidence and boldness and action. They saw him break the bread and their eyes were opened. That's my prayer for us this morning as well, too. That as we share communion together, as we too break that bread and drink together of the cup, that by his spirit and by his grace, something in our eyes would be opened as well. That something would burn again in our hearts as it burned in them. That something in us would be moved to a kind of courage in this world in which it is so easy right now to be afraid that we would no longer be people of fear, but a people who recognizes that we are surrounded by an army, by chariots and horses of fire, that though this world is full of conflict and loss, though it's full of complexities and pain, this world is surrounded by his armies and his presence, that at a single word, legions of angels come to our defense, but in this moment, Not by his absence or indifference, but by his love, by his grace and his mercy. 
we're not quite sure what he's doing. Waiting a little longer, holding off that return. But we believe, even by this passage, that it is for something good. That he is leading even more of those who are blind to this feast. But that a day is coming when all eyes will be opened. When every blind eye will see. Where every knee will bow. Where every tongue will finally confess that he is Lord. And in that day, all those who will receive from him, who will believe and put their hope in him, will once again see him break that bread and pass that cup. That he will come again. And that we will be with him for that feast. So it is this morning we take this communion together. And we do it as an act of remembering. An act of proclaiming. Eyes will be opened. Feasts will be had. And until it happens again, we believe and we trust, even when we don't see. We refuse to live by fear, but we live into his grace and mercy, a protection, a shield around us. If you've got your elements this morning, I read those words as is our tradition. Paul writing to the Corinthians in chapter 11. For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, also, he took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes again. We do this this morning as a remembrance. We do it as act of seeing something that we are prone to once again growing blind to. That Christ is ours by grace and by mercy. That eternity is ours by his death and resurrection. That his shield, the armies of heaven are ours by one word of his command. That everything is secure with him who is capable of raising us even from the dead. And so it is we remember again. And so it is we pray, Christ, let me see it. In the midst of this world that blinds me to it, the God of this world that blinds my eyes, keep them open to your grace and to your mercy, to know what I have and to live in the midst of it. Let's pray together over the elements. Heavenly Father, it's our prayer that you would do it again this morning. God, burn in our hearts by your spirit. Make your gospel real and alive to us again. What we have by your grace, by your sacrifice, received by your death and resurrection. And so it is we come together to take again of these elements. To see your body broken. Your blood poured out for us. And that by it we might remember and you would again open our eyes. God, we know how easy it is to be blinded by this world. To become fearful by the things the world fears. To be obsessed over the things the world obsesses over. To see the world's armies and its kings and its powers, its rules and regulations, its conflicts and debates. To grow blind to your presence, your reality in the midst of it. God, open our eyes this morning. By the power of your Holy Spirit, heal our eyes that we might see again.
that in you we have all things, that there is no word spoken in all of creation, no secret, no plan, that you are not in ear of, that you thwart the rulers of this world, that you open the eyes of the blind, that you encircle those who seek to encircle us. And so it is we will not fear. We eat and drink this morning as a proclamation of our hope, not our fear. That in you we have all things, life itself, even through death. So we join in your death that we might live. That we might live into that hope. It's in your name we pray. Amen.